So I'm gonna I'm gonna start by mentioning something very general that doesn't have to do with this topic per se, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. There is a letter, you know that the Lubavitcher Rebbe answered thousands and thousands of letters and that many of those letters are published so that we can study them. There's a letter that someone wrote to the Rebbe asking, I guess what you might call a, a more scholarly question, which was why in Chassidus Chabad do we not find so many mashalim, so many parables? Now it's an interesting question because if I were to receive that question, my first knee-jerk reaction would be, what are you talking about? We have lots of parables in Chabad Hasidic teachings. But what the person meant was in contrast with other styles of Hasidic teaching, which may use an extended metaphor as the vehicle for teaching a mystical concept. In Chabad, we don't have that kind of extended metaphor. Metaphors are, 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 are terse. Um, just, I'm just throwing out an example. Like, for instance, you know, in, in, in Chabad, it'll talk about the relative non-existence of created beings. Like, how can we say they exist, but yet there's nothing but Hashem? So it'll say, you know, it's like the existence of the sun ray. That when the sun ray shines away from the sun, it looks like something identifiable and distinct. But if you trace it to its source, you realize it's just an extension of the sun. I, I'm just throwing that out as an example. My point is that that's the type of metaphor you have in Chassidus Chabad. You don't have like, there was a princess and she was locked in a tower and then there was the evil eunuch who was chasing her or whatever, you know. Parable. Um, I think that's a real one, by the way, isn't it? That's a okay. And there was a rowboat. Am I making this up? Is that Rapunzel? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't claim to be well versed in uh, all of these these uh, parables. But at any rate, so somebody wrote to the Rebbe and asked him about that. And the Rebbe wrote back something very interesting and said, basically the Rebbe granted the person his premise and said, you're right, we don't have so many parables in Chassidus Chabad. And, uh, which again, surprises me because I think there are a lot of parables, but the Rebbe, I guess a lot is a relative term, so. The Rebbe said, you're right, we don't have so many parables. And, and the reason is this, the Rebbe said, you should know that when you find a parable or a metaphor I think metaphor is actually the more uh, accurate term. When you find a metaphor in Chabad Chassidus, it is not a rhetorical device. It is not merely the comparison of two things for the sake of effective communication. You know, we often use metaphor to explain an unfamiliar concept by comparing it to a familiar concept. I mean, that's pretty much the purpose of a metaphor. If I want to explain something to you that you don't know, so I'll compare it to something that you do know. And it's basically, it's a rhetorical device. It's a way of explaining something. So that I've said in this letter, 
The reason you won't find, relatively speaking, so many metaphors is because if a metaphor appears in Chabad Chassidus, it's not merely the comparison of two things to each other. Rather, it is the description of one thing as it exists simultaneously on two levels of reality. So for instance, and here I'll give an example that will help me segue into the topic for tonight. If Chassidus says that the six workdays in Shabbos are masculine and feminine, respectively, that's not a comparison of two things. That's a description of one thing as it exists simultaneously on two levels of, of reality. So in time, it's called six days in Shabbos. In human beings, it's called male and female. In the world of Atsilos, it's called the six emotional energies and the receptive sphera of Malchus. That's the, some Kabbalistic uh, terminology for you. But the point is, when we liken all of those things to each other, it's not merely a means of explaining what it is, it's actually describing one entity as it manifests on various different levels of reality. How's that? No problem? Really? I went, I went all the way to the deepest depth right out of the gate. I didn't even tell a joke. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. I talked about the weather. I said it was hot out. You're all with me? You're okay with this? No. Okay, thank you. All right. A little honesty, please. As above, so below. As below, so above. There are stages to creation, to the process whereby the infinite engenders finitude. We call them worlds. There are spiritual worlds and there is this uh, physical universe, what we call Olam Haza, the phenomenological universe, right? The world of touch and taste and sound and sight, smell. But everything that exists down here originates as an archetype up there, which is why, you know, there's a, a saying, it's a Hasidic saying, it's a turn of phrase actually, it borrows a uh, scriptural expression from the book of Job, Mipsari Achse Elaka. Have you ever heard these words? Mipsari, from my flesh, Achse, I perceive Elaka, godliness. What does it mean for my flesh, I perceive godliness? Basically, we are created Mitzalem Elakim, God's image. So if I look at myself, I can have insight into the Creator. Because that template is imprinted into me. Conversely, if I have insight about the Creator, which is basically what 
Kabbalah teaches, you know, ideas about the spiritual realms. When I have any insight about the, about the higher realms, I can also apply that to me. I can have insight about what makes me tick. It goes both ways. So I can understand human nature better and have an aha about the Creator, or I can have an insight about the Creator and it'll give me an epiphany about psychology. It works both ways. It's sort of like, I don't know, you ever look at those M.C. Escher drawings, those fractals, repeating patterns, bigger and bigger and bigger and smaller, 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 depending which way you, right? There's just certain patterns in creation and they just repeat themselves over and over and over again. So those are the metaphors that Chassidus Chabad employs. Those are the metaphors. And sometimes I get insight about something that's pedestrian and common and, and mundane by learning about how it looks in its pristine spiritual archetype. Sometimes I can have insight about some abstract spiritual concept by knowing what it looks like when it manifests down here. How are we doing? Closer? Yeah. I didn't ask if we arrived, I asked if we got closer. <laughs> we got closer or farther away? Farther away. Okay. So let's, let's give examples. It's called the changing of the guard. Yeah. <laughs> like a palace. No one even noticed. Huh? <laughs> <sighs> I was using my teaching voice. Okay. All right. So let's. Here's what I'm going to do. Bear with me. Okay. I'm going to start from the highest to the high. I'm going to start from the most abstract. And I'm warning you, it's abstract. So don't say to me, "This is unrelatable." Unrelatable. Well, yeah, it should be. It's abstract. And then what I want to do is take it down a notch and see how it manifests on a plane closer to what we experience as day-to-day -day existence. And I'll take it down another notch to what we actually experience as day-to-day -day existence. But I want to trace it from the archetype to the lower-level manifestation. So let's start like this. Bear with me. After all, I'm the guy with the mic, so I'm setting the agenda. In the highest world, the spiritual world of Atsilos, which means the world of emanation, a world that is so transparent that it is hardly creation. It's almost just a window to the creator. A world of lofty angels and souls. That world is composed of ten spheroids and their relationship with each other. Specifically, there are six emotional spheres, chesed, vura, tiferes, netzach, yisoid, six emotional spheres. Those are the six energies, creative energies. It's a palette of different creative energies. They all have their own signature style. And they relate with the seventh sphere, or tenth, depending if you're counting the three intellectuals at the beginning, they relate with the sphere below them called malchus, which means kingship or sovereignty. 
The six emotional energies invest themselves within Malchus and create worlds. The six emotional energies have the potential to create, but don't really have the interest to do so. They are aloof. They are removed. But when they unite with Malchus and invest themselves within Malchus, then that union actually gives rise to lower realms or lower planes of reality. In terms of divine names, yes, I'm still abstract, divine names. I can, yes, I consider divine names a spiritual topic, just so you know. There is Kutshebrichu Ushinte. You know, like we say, L'shem Yichud Kutshebrichu Ushinte. Kutshebrichu is just Aramaic for HaKadosh Baruch That means the Holy One, blessed be He. Holy means aloof. What's holy? Something that's set apart. It's not every day. Special, reserved, exclusive. That's why, for instance, we call marriage Kiddushin because it establishes an exclusive relationship, one that's set apart. So when God is set apart, so to speak, from creation, he has the ability to create, but very little interest to do so. That's called Kuchibichu. The opposite energy is Shechintai, the Shechina, which is the word Shechemis, indwelling. That's the opposite thrust. It goes down. It goes downward. It dwells within, imminently. So we have this transcendence going up, this imminence going down. They unite with each other and they give birth to worlds. I just described to you creation as it takes place in the highest realm. That what we just described is the archetype and the source for masculinity and femininity on all levels of reality. It takes place within God, it takes place within creation. There's Kuchibrichu and there's Shrimte. There's the six emotional energies and there is the, recept the receptive Malchus which turns those energies into something else. That is masculinity and femininity on its highest level. Let's bring it down a notch, okay? Thank you for bearing with me. I appreciate you bearing with the spiritual stuff. I know it's tough. I know people like practical stuff, but I figure it's better to start from the abstract and bring it down to the concrete than to start from the concrete and bring it up to the abstract. You know why I like that direction? Because bottom line, I want to apply it. So I want to start up here and bring it down here so we end up with the practical application. Okay. So there is reward for bearing with me with all the spiritual talk. It will actually be about your life if you stick with it. Let's bring it down a notch. I'm going to bring it down a notch Let's talk still abstractly, but more um, 
on a more relatable level, let's talk about time. Okay? Time is a little bit abstract, right? It's not a physical thing. But it's a little bit more re relatable. Time is an organizing principle of the physical world, right? Time, space, continuum. If you have space, you have time. So let's talk about time. There's a natural pattern within time, the way that time is organized. And it was imprinted within time upon the very first cycle of time, which was the six days of creation and the first day of rest. And that pattern repeats itself every seven days for the rest of the duration of creation. And it's pretty amazing that all over the world, everybody knows when Shabbos is. It's pretty amazing that every culture, every nationality follows this pattern. I mean, it's pretty quirky if you think about it. Could you imagine that if taking Shabbos off would be like taking Yom Tov off? You know, like when you take a Yom Tov off, oh, then they're like, I thought Rosh Hashanah was in October. No, this year it's in September. Right? Can you imagine if it would be like, if, like the Roman Empire, they didn't have the seven day week before they were Christianized. You know, that's why Caesar talked about the Ides of March. The Ides, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's like the 10th of the month or something like that. Yeah, is that what it is? The 15th, okay. So, can you imagine though, if they had like, you know, they had Ides of March, they had like some sort of calendar that doesn't coincide with the weeks, and you would have to tell them, Shabbos is coming. Well, last time Shabbos wasn't the Ides, this one, is it the Ides, this Okay. So it's, and it's just something to be grateful for. Just think about it. Don't take it for granted. In time, we have six days, and we have Shabbos. That template was established at the very creation of the world, when Hashem created in six days and rested on the seventh. What is the relationship between the six days and the seventh day? So our sages tell us that one who toils before Shabbos will eat on Shabbos. Why is that? Well, there's a simple reason. You're not allowed to work on Shabbos, and cooking is a form of work. So if you toil before Shabbos, you go out, you work, you make a paycheck, you buy uh, food, you go grocery shopping, you peel the potatoes, ah, shouldn't have your You bake the kogel. I made a bracha before, by the way, just in case anyone's worried. <laughs> I made a bracha at the beginning. I don't know where they're going to edit this video, where it's going to start from. <laughs> So one who toils on the of Shabbos will have what to eat on Shabbos. What's the relationship then between the six days and Shabbos? We could call that provider and, and, and recipient. Provider and recipient. If you want to use the technical terms in Hebrew, if that makes you feel fancy, it's called mashpia and makabel. But you could call it provider and recipient. So the six days are providing the kugel. 
And the Shabbos receives the kugel. Shabbos can't make a kugel. You can't make kugel on Shabbos. And if you realize after candlelight, oh, I want to make a kugel. Too late. I'm sorry. Pencils down. Turn in your blue books. Done. Done. No more. So Shabbos doesn't even have the ability to generate her own kugel. She's a recipient. And that is, that provider and recipient is the same thing that's going on in Atsilos with the six emotional energies and Malchus, six days and Shabbos. The six emotional energies invest themselves within Malchus and create worlds. Six work days provide for Shabbos, they give her the kugel, and then she eats the kugel, or she lets you eat the kugel. So we have provided recipient, again, we described it before on a more spiritual level, here is on the level of time, how it exists in, in time, provided recipient. And we're getting closer to the way it manifests in human beings. And we're going to say that this provider-recipient relationship or dynamic in the human realm is called masculinity and femininity. But now that I let that cat out of the bag, I want to address something. Before we even talk about people, males and females, I, I want to talk about masculinity and femininity while it's still relatively safe to do so, while we're still just talking about six days in Chavez. And I want to talk about one of the misunderstandings, the great misunderstanding about the provider-recipient relationship. And one that leads to a great deal of discord and confusion. And that is, you know, you know what's worse than finding a worm in your apple? A worm, that's right. So what's the most harmful thing as far as messing with your head is half a truth. Half a truth will mess with your head. Half the truth is that the provider provides and the recipient receives. And she, now that I've revealed to you it's masculine and feminine, I will use the gender specific pronouns freely. And she cannot generate anything without having first received from him. How does that sound to you? He's the doer. He's the macher, literally. He's the one making stuff. And she's the nebuchadnezzar, who's totally dependent. And she's waiting. She's passive. And if he doesn't provide it for her, she doesn't have it. Sounds bad. And one or something, it's true. But it's only half of the truth. I told you, half the truth is very damaging. We need the other half of the truth here. Yeah, it's true that one who toils on Shabbos will eat on Shabbos. If you don't go work and make a paycheck and go shopping and bring home the food and peel the potatoes and chop them up and put it in the oven, you don't do that on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you will not have it on Shabbos. It's true. That's all true. Can we tell the other half of the truth? The other half of the truth is, let's look at both sides of the equation. 
What do the six days give Shabbos? A kugel. But what does Shabbos give the six days? Shabbos doesn't just receive from the six days before it. Shabbos gives birth to and nourishes the six days that follow it. The six work days give her a kugel. She gives them a reason to go out and live in the world again for another six days. So you trade in potatoes and you get meaning. That's called a good trade. In fact, not only is it a good trade, we call that an incomparable upgrade. Incomparable, what's incomparable? Incomparable is, well first let's talk about comparable. Comparable is that I give you a uh, million dollars to invest in your hedge fund, and a year from now, you give me a million point two. I'd stick with you, make me uh, 200,000 on my million every year. It's good. But that is a comparable improvement. It has a number. But let's say I gave you something, and what you gave me back was of a totally different category. That's called an incomparable upgrade. So if I give you potatoes and you give me meaning, that's an incomparable upgrade. Every provider and recipient relationship will yield an incomparable upgrade. A true recipient is not a receptacle. How many, uh, does it say how many ounces this is? Someone want to guess? Somebody? Ten. Think ten? Okay. This is a ten ounce cup. What is the maximum amount of seltzer that I could dispense at once from this cup? Ten ounces. I agree with you. But let's change it up. What about uh, milk? What's the maximum amount of milk that I could dispense? From this cup, I fill it all the way and empty it all the way. How, how many ounces? Still 10 ounces. Okay, let me change it up. What about uh, fill it with vodka? How about? Still only 10 ounces. This is a receptacle, it's not a recipient. You see, it has a capacity and it can be filled to its capacity and then it can dispense according to its capacity. It's sort of like you know, you put, I, I know that Jewish people might not be able to, re to relate to this, but if like you put your money in a savings account, and then you come back, and it's the same amount of money that you put in there. So you don't get more than what you put in, you just can get whatever it is you put in. That's a receptacle. A cup is a receptacle. Um, Shabbos is a recipient. Shabbos takes in all the preparations that we do for Shabbos. Okay, it's not just a kogel. Okay, it's a white tablecloth, it's candles, it's dressing nice and eating fine foods. But all that stuff has a price tag. It all has a, 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 a quantifiable value. You give that to Shabbos and she turns that into something 
incomparably greater, something spiritual, something meaningful, a, a reason to live. Incomparable upgrade. So that's not a receptacle, that's a recipient. That's the other half of the truth, that a real provider and recipient isn't a one-way relationship, it's a two-way relationship. And not only is it a two-way relationship, but whatever the recipient gives back to the provider is of incomparably greater value than what the provider initially gave to her. Now let's bring it down a notch. Now let's talk about male and female. Let's bring it down all the way down. I want to do, I, I'm going to actually double back later on. I want to bring it, when I'm going to talk about male and female first, I want to go all the way down to the, as down as you can go, which is indisputable biological fact. And the reason is because I don't want to open myself up at this point for any debates about, well, our masculinity and femininity social constructs. If you give the little boy a dolly and you give the little girl a toy truck, what will happen? I don't want to get into that. Let's first talk, talk about biology because it's indisputable. And then I'll double back and I'll talk about the emotional stuff, which is, I'm sure, what most people are interested in. Femininity. Everyone, I'm not, I don't, everyone knows where babies come from, right? If somebody's parents didn't tell them yet, I don't want to be the one to. A woman is not a receptacle, she's a recipient. When a woman gives birth, that's called an incomparable upgrade. What she received, she received this negligibly valuable packet of genetic information, which, by the way, when our sages <laughs> describe this packet of information, they don't speak about it in such glorious terms. You know, there's a line in the Pirkei office that says, if you want to humble yourself, you should think about this fact. Me'ayin bossa, where do you come from? Mitipa srucha, from a fetid drop. It's not a compliment. It's supposed to humble you. <laughs> Right? So you come from this fetid drop. That's what the provider provided. The recipient took nine months and turned that into you. Turned that into a child with, with, a, with, a, with ten toes and ten fingers and with a smile and with a personality and a name. I mean, that's an incomparable upgrade. And that's just biological fact. And by the way, it doesn't, we don't have to speak about it only in terms of uh, human reproduction. <clears throat> Look at it in terms of vegetative reproduction as well. Same thing, by the way. Like I said, this pattern is replicated on every level. So it's just the same pattern over and over and over again. So for instance, you take the seed and you put it in the ground. Which is masculine which is feminine? The seed is masculine, the ground is feminine. Oh, that's a, that's a slur against women. You just said women are dirt. <laughs> They're the ground. Everyone steps on the ground. Okay.
But a seed by itself has negligible value. What's the value of a seed? I mean, it has some value. If you have like a bag of them, like 100,000 of them, you could sell it to a farmer for a few bucks. But one seed, what's the value of a seed? And yet, if you put it in the, in the soil, in the earth, what happens? She reveals the infinite potential that was locked away in that seed. Like they say, anybody can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. Because there are infinite apples in every seed. But it's the ground that reveals that. So the ground, the earth, is a true recipient. That's why Shlomo Melech, wisest of all men, said, Hakol min ha'afon. Everything's from the dirt. Everything. It all starts from the earth, from the ground. All sustenance in the world. So this ground that we step upon, this ground that we dismiss, dirt, walking to the house and knock the dirt off your shoes, or wipe the dirt off on the welcome mat. And yet everything's from the dirt. Because she alone has that power to reveal the reproductive potential that's locked away in the seed. And then the animals eat the vegetation, and the other animals eat those animals. And the whole food chain comes from that, from that power that the earth possesses. So now, how, how are you? Are you following this? I mean, these are, this, these are, this is just a pattern. I'm just repeating the same pattern. It's, it's repetitious. It's intentionally repetitious. I didn't make up the repetition, by the way. This is the way that the Creator made the world. It's the same pattern, just repeats itself. Okay. Let's double back now. How's that? Can we double back? Let's. So we started in Atzilos, six emotional energies in Malchus. We talked about divine names, Kuchibricho and Shina. Then we took it down to time, six days and Shabbos. Then we took it all the way down to biology, reproduction. I want to go back up a little bit. I want to talk about male and female, but something a little bit more abstract within male and female, and that is emotional energy. Okay, now biological fact, which is the easiest to identify because it's the most concrete, it's a little bit more abstract. But again, it follows the same pattern. Once you got the pattern, this is it. I mean, now you could, basically, you could extrapolate the rest of this talk on your own. Because I, no, I gave you the rules. The rules are there. Okay, so let's talk about this, okay? I'll lead you along. Basically, now, you can do this on your own. By the way, do you know that's pretty much the goal of every talk that I give and every class that I give? is to give people principles that they can then apply on their own. If you are courteous enough to give me an hour of your time, I feel a duty to give you many hours worth of insight. How can you give me an hour and I can give you back more than an hour? That's right. Because a true student, a true recipient, 
gets more from the teacher than what the teacher actually said. Which is precisely why it says, I learned much from my teachers, even more from my colleagues, but from my students most of all. A student, a real recipient, takes the teacher's teachings and expands them incomparably. But you have to be a real teacher and you have to be a real student. And then something can be created from that. So yeah, absolutely. I'm not here to just give you an hour's worth of information. I want to give you potentially hundreds and maybe thousands of hours worth of insight based on these principles. Okay, so let's, let's, let's test drive. A man goes out to work. A woman also can go out to work, but it's somehow different when a man goes out to work. To a man, it's, uh, it's funny because men always complain. You know, I'm not just a income machine. I'm not just a money earner. I'm not just my job. And yet, his whole identity and self-esteem is locked in with his job. It's an interesting irony. So a man goes out, you know, a woman goes out, and she works, she takes pride in her work. But there's something about a man that really, really identifies deeply with that job. And of course, you know, it makes sense because he's the six days, he's the six work days, so he really identifies with that doing, as opposed to Shabbos, which is being. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, a little bit later, the difference between doing and being. But let, let, let's start more simple. He goes out and he works and, he, and he's tired and he's beaten down. And he walks through the door. He's about to walk through the door. You tell me what happens when he enters. You tell me what happens when he enters that door And he's emotionally needy. And he's looking to be nurtured and lifted up by his wife. You know, women, when you marry a man, he's already been ruined by one relationship with a woman. Right? Like they say, Oedipus, Oedipus, as long as he loves his mother. So he knows mommy. He knows that's, that's a relationship with a woman. That's... So the man walks to the door, and he's tired, he's beaten down. And he's feeling emotionally needy. So he's walking through the door ready to receive. And you tell me what happens. See, you can't fight against the grain of creation. You cannot reverse the tides. Male and female is provider and recipient. And when a provider tries to turn himself into a recipient, frustration, misunderstanding, and hurt feelings quickly follow. And not even that the two parties necessarily understand why they're not getting along and why they are frustrated with each other. 
but something isn't clicking, something isn't right. You're trying to plant the dirt in the seat. You're trying to have Shabbos make kogel for the six days. The Shina is depositing her energy within the six emotional spheres. I mean, how wacky is that? I'm just joking with you guys. I just deliberately said something abstruse and played it off as if it was a relatable joke. That's my sense of humor. I knew that was really... But wouldn't that be nifty if we were on that level that I could make Kabbalistic references and they would be so clear to us that we would just crack up like, ha ha, what a card. <laughs> Malchus is going to be my spiel to Zola. What this guy's going to crack up? <laughs> you. <laughs> By the way, for the Kabbalists, I like telling jokes to bomb. I don't know why. It's a certain masochistic streak that I have, you know? <laughs> they say this till the masochist hurt me. He said, no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, the masochist told to say this hurt me. He said, no. Okay, whatever. You laughed at me. Then. <laughs> you know what? Arachampin walked into a bar and the bartender said, what a long face. Okay. I'm separate the Kabbalists from the non Kabbalists. Arachampin means the long face. It's a part of it's, it's Kesser. It's getting more about So what's going to happen when that man walks through the door and he wants to receive? I mean, that's about as emotionally viable, and it's pretty much the emotional version of him saying, you know what, honey, how about you impregnate me this time? It ain't going to happen. No, no, sorry, sorry, man. What that man has to do, he has to walk through that door completely selflessly, no matter what happened to him out in the world, and he has to deliver emotional energy. He has to deliver emotional energy. And he's going to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. First of all, let me tell you, man. You don't have to fill the house with emotional energy. In fact, not only you don't have to fill the house with emotional energy, you can't. She can. A woman can fill the house with emotional energy. You're a man, you can't. You ever been to a bachelor pad? They always show you their stereo. You ever been to a bachelor pad? You know, single guy gets fancy uh, apartment. They always have a fancy sound system. But there's no emotional energy. Without a woman, with no emotional energy. So, no, men, you do not have to fill the house with emotional energy. All you have to do is fill her with emotional energy. And it's not so hard. As much as you feel needy when you walk through the door, let go of that because it's a pipe dream. It ain't happening. She can't do that for you any more than Chavez can make the cobra for the six days. Walk through the door, focus on her. Give her the emotional energy. Give her attention. How was your day? Eye contact. You can't be looking at your phone while you have this conversation. And fill her up. And something amazing happens. She takes that little bit of energy that took you 30 minutes to deliver, sometimes <laughs> 10 minutes, and she will turn that into enough energy to keep your home running in a healthy and vibrant way. 
But it's not going to happen if you enter the men, I'm speaking to you, if, if, if you enter the house looking to receive. It cannot happen. So ultimately, you know, us men, we receive the most by being givers. Provider and recipient are both givers. Mashpia and Makabal are both givers. And in fact, like we said before, she's a bigger giver than he is. Because she does the incomparable upgrade. Alright, so then men start thinking, okay, hold on, so what am I? I'm chopped liver, basically, because I'm the giver, right? But she's also a giver, really. And in fact, she's a bigger giver. And not just she's a bigger giver, she's an incomparably bigger giver. So then what the heck am I? I'm a giver, and I'm not even, like, the best giver. And, and the truth is, to be a provider, a mashpia, the definition of what makes a, a, a provider unique is not the fact that he gives. Because like I mentioned, a real recipient also gives, and actually gives more. What makes a provider unique is not how much he gives. It's when he gives. It's that he gives first. He gives first. He initiates. So we didn't start creation with Shabbos and then go into six days. We started with six days and then went into Shabbos. He will receive more from her, incomparably more from her, than he ever put into her. But he has to initiate. He has to give first. And that means masculinity, by definition, is giving without preconditions. Giving when nobody is supporting you, nobody is rooting for you, nobody is telling you, don't worry, we got your back. No, you have to make the first move when you are risking putting yourself out there, making yourself vulnerable. You got nothing to give, you feel you're completely dry, and yet you muster up the ability to put something into the system because if not for you, nothing's happening. If you don't make the first move, if the man does not bring a modicum of emotional energy into the relationship, it won't come from anywhere else. It can't come from anywhere else. But the rewards are disproportionate. How are we doing? Is this clear? This makes sense? Makes sense why reality is wired this way? Makes sense that no matter how much you may dislike it, there's no sense in fighting it? We can protest, but we're not going to change this any sooner than we're going to change the biological reality of masculinity and femininity. The emotional realities are just as real as the biological realities, and both the biological and the emotional derive from and are manifestations of a spiritual reality, which is why I started talking up there in the spiritual realms, 
So we should, we should understand how deep this whole thing really goes. This is the very fabric of the universe. We're not changing it. So another thing, a man wonders, if I always have to initiate, I have to somehow find it in me to get things kick-started, no matter where I'm holding. How do I do it? It's a real question. And women, if you don't think it's a real question, you need to stop and be a little bit more compassionate. It's a real question. How can you always be the one who initiates? How do you bring it home every time? So there's something very important for men to realize. I was once, uh, I think this actually took place at the national uh, retreat, the Jewish national retreat. And I was, I don't remember the subject, but I was referring to God as he, you know, with the masculine pronoun. And there was a woman who said, why do you keep referring to God as he? And I said, because he's my husband. <laughs> and that bought me a little bit of time. <laughs> and I told her like this, I said, listen. There was a little boy who he, he went to a one-room schoolhouse, a little, little hater. And his father was the, it was the Rebbe and Cheder. And because the father wanted to show he doesn't have favorites, he used to be extra hard on the boy. So one night the little boy is at home and he's looking sad. And the father says, why are you sad? And he says, well, before I tell you, I want to know, who am I talking to right now, my father or my Rebbe? And uh, he says, we're at home, I'm, I'm your father. He says, okay, Tati, tell my teacher to stop being such a jerk. <laughs> So I, I told her like this, I said, look, God wears a lot of hats. He's infinite, we can't describe him, but we can describe our relationship with him. So depending on our relationship with him, we have different names and different descriptions. Sometimes God is the lawgiver, sometimes God is the judge, and sometimes God is the the, 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 the nourisher, or the nurturer, uh, which is a feminine quality, by the way. Um, a lot of different descriptions we have. And there's one relationship which is like the core of all of those. And when King Solomon, who was the wisest of all men, wanted to hone in on the true nature of the relationship between the Jewish people and God, he wrote this parable called Song of Songs. And it's about lovers, about uh, husband and wife. And it's interesting, even in the times of the, of the sages, of the Mishnah, there were people who questioned the value of Song of Songs. There were people who didn't want to include it as being a, you know, a canonical text of, the, of, of Tanakh. And Rabbi Akiva, he said, God forbid to, to exclude all of the, the Song of Songs. He said, all of the books of Tanakh are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. Why did he call the Song of Songs the Holy of Holies? If you look at the Besamikdash, we're in the three weeks right now, we're in a time when we are actively 
trying to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash is built in concentric circles of, of increasing holiness. So first you have the land of Israel, then you have the city of Yerushalayim within the walls, and then you have the Temple Mount, and then you have the, the walls of the temple and the courtyard and the holy, and then you have the holy of holies. That's the epicenter. That's the very core of, of holiness, and everything sort of emanates outward from there. What did Rabbi Akiva mean when he says that the Song of Songs is the holy of holies? It's basically what it is. There are many different ways for me to describe my relationship with Hashem. Those are all different, you know, uh, levels of the onion. But when I peel everything away and you get to the core, it's a marriage between a man and a woman. So Rabbi Akiva says, Song of Songs, which is a parable about a husband and wife, is the Holy of Holies. That's the core of the relationship. The core of my relationship with Hashem is marriage. And specifically, He is the husband, and we are the wife. Am Yisrael is a bride. Which is funny, because if you're a Jewish woman, then at least you're consistent. You're a woman in your terrestrial existence, and you're a woman in your relationship with God. If you're a Jewish man, it's confusing, because at home, you're a man, but in your relationship with Hashem, you're a woman. Which is, by the way, why men need reminders of their femininity and women don't. Obviously, a woman doesn't need reminders of her femininity. Men need, well, maybe today they do. But <laughs> men generally need reminders of their femininity, which is, for instance, why we make a bracha, shalaya sani isha. One basic reason is to remind you that you're not a woman, but hold on a second, that's, you have to pause and realize that that just means biologically as far as, you know, the obligations that Torah places upon you, male obligations or female obligations, but actually you are a woman. That's why there's a, there's a second level of reading of that, of that blessing, Shaloi. We, I mean, it's written in the Siddur, Shin Lamed Aleph, which means Loi with an Aleph is not, no. But, you know, Loi with a Vav is possessive masculine pronoun, his. So we make a blessing, Shaloi Yosani Yishid, that I was not made a woman, Loi with an Aleph, but really the subtext is Shaloya Sanisha, I was made his wife with a vav. A woman doesn't need that reminder that she's his wife. She's always a wife. She's always a woman. A man needs that reminder. Although I'm not a woman, but yet I really am a woman. And that's why also men put on tefillin, women don't put on tefillin. The shalyad is supposed to be a womb. That's what's the one chamber. And it has the ritzua, the strap, which is the umbilical cord. And at the end, we wrap it around our finger, and that's supposed to be the tabash shal kiddushin, the, the, the engagement ring. All, and, and when we make, when we put on the phone, Asher Kiddishonu Mitzvah Mitzvah Asher Kiddishonu means he who sanctified us with his mitzvah. It also means he betrothed us because Kiddushin, Chupa, the Kiddushin, Kiddushin means betrothal. So Asher Kiddishonu Mitzvah Mitzvah he who betrothed us, he made us his wife through his mitzvahs. And a man has all these different various reminders that he is Hashem's wife. So, man. When you are wondering, when you are searching, where am I supposed to get the koyach? Where do I get the energy to be the provider, to be the one who enters the door and jumpstarts everything, no matter what my day was like? You have to remember this. 
First, be a wife to your husband so that you can be a proper husband to your wife. When a man realizes that he is loved and cared for by his husband, by Hashem, he has the strength and the power to go into his home and be a husband there. Now what I want to tell you applies to all of us, male and female. We are all Hashem's wife. I gave you the principles. Let me ask you. He's the husband. We're the wife. He's a provider. We're the recipient. He gives us everything, right? That's the provider. Provider is the first giver. Hashem's definitely the first giver. He started giving before there was anyone to give back. Chesed chinam, gratuitous kindness. When he started everything, it was totally unilateral. And really, to tell you the truth, as he continues it, it's also unilateral. He gives us everything. He gives us our lives, our existence. He creates the world. He's the ultimate giver. And yet, we, as his wife, what do we do with all that? You tell me. You tell me what the Jewish people do if we're a wife. Everybody's saying the same thing in different words. We take what he's given us and turn it into something incomparably greater. He gives us a world. He gives us our lives. He gives us the mitzvahs which are the tools for refining the world and the blueprint for guiding our lives. He sustains us. He gives us everything. We take that and we turn that into a home for him. We give him something greater than he can provide for himself. You see, when God created the world, he put his divine presence here on earth, in Gan Eden. And then it was expelled because of the sin of the tree of knowledge. But that's not what he really wanted. God is a perfect gentleman. He only enters where he's invited. God doesn't want only a home in this world. He wants a home in this world of this world. He doesn't want to force his way in. He wants us to make it ready for him and to ask him, to invite him and say, look what we made for you. Like a real wife. Which is really why the whole story of God and the Jewish people is the romantic story of someone looking for their other half. Just let you know that male and female are not two who become one, but one who becomes two and becomes one again. We are the feminine dimension of God. And God is complete and he's echad when he's one with us in this world.
Now, if that doesn't empower you, that doesn't make you realize how important you are and how powerful your mitzvahs are. I don't know what else will motivate you. You want to be told that it's reward and punishment, that it's a company where you work and you get points. If that motivates you, we can, we, you can be an employee and you can get paid. This is so much deeper than that. This is you're a wife, and the infinite gave you everything and says, now, my beloved, give it back to me in a way that's incomparably greater. Give me that home for myself that I can't make for myself because what he seeks is not the home that he makes, it's the home that we make. Every mitzvah is an act of being a homemaker. Every mitzvah is a wife's act of devotion to her husband. Every mitzvah. And it's an inseparable relationship. That's also why teshuva works. Because when we mess up, he doesn't write us off. We're not employees. Employees who don't produce get fired. Eventually, they get let go. They're not productive. But we're his other half. He can't let us go. And he waits for us to return. Because what he wants, he can only get from us. Now, that's a silly thing for an infinite being to want, I suppose. But then again, I'm not an infinite being, so I wouldn't know what's a silly thing for an infinite being to want. What I do know is that is what he wants. And he wants it with the passion and, and, the, and the desire and the intensity of a lover which is precisely what King Solomon was bringing home when he wrote that parable. This all makes sense, right? Complete sense. Okay. Maybe I'll tell you one more thing that you can apply, and then I'll let you uh, dwell on this. So, uh, we mentioned that masculinity and femininity are like the six days in Shabbos. Remember earlier when I said that that's doing and being? And I said, hopefully I'll get back to that. Okay, I'm getting back to that. What's doing and being? It's interesting, you know, there was a guy who was called up for an aliyah. He was a guest. And uh, the guy called him up for an aliyah. He says, yeah, I made. I says, you know, Rochel Basit And the Gabbai says, no, come on. What's your name? He says, Rochel Basit Sipayra. says, I'm trying to give you an alit. You know, you're making everybody wait. What's your name? He says, I'm telling you, it's Rochel Basit Sipayra. The Gabbai says, who heard of a man named Rochel Basit 
The guy says, look, business is rough. I had to put everything into my wife's name. <laughs> it's interesting. An aliyah, when you get called up for an aliyah, you are called up as the son of your father. Why are you called up as the son of your father? Because aliyahs are Kayin Levi Yisrael. Kayin Levi Yisrael is tribal. Tribal basically means what you do, what your function, how you serve within the Jewish people. Okay? So tribal identity you get from your father because your father gives you your role, what you do, how you function. Contrast this with when we talk about who you are. You are the son or daughter of your mother. When we pray for someone, say Tehillim for them, write in to the Rebbe for someone, it's always Shmai, Shem Imai, the son or the daughter of, of their mother. Because your father gives you what you do, your mother gives you who you are. That's also why Jewish identity goes through the woman, because the woman gives the child the child's most core basic identity. And that's one of the differences between masculinity and femininity, is the difference between do, doing and being. Which again, is six days and Shabbos. Six days are for doing, Shabbos is for being. Which is why, by the way, many people have trouble with Shabbos. That's why we have people texting on Shabbos. Because we are addicted to distraction. But I repeat myself, because all addiction is distraction. It is being allergic to myself, uncomfortable in my own skin. So I find something that's anti-me medication, something to draw me out of myself so I'm not aware of self. And then when I'm done with it, I'm right back to myself and climbing the walls all over again. Comes Shabbos, and there's no distraction anymore because we don't do, we just be. And then you just are left naked with whoever you really are. And some people can't take that. It drives them mad. Think about a man. He notices that his wife is upset. Generally speaking, by the way, this is four to six hours after his wife first becomes upset. <laughs> By the time we realize that she's upset, she's been upset for a long time. A really long time. Whatever amount you think it is, man, triple it. Like, wow, I didn't notice it until now. I bet you it's been like for an hour or two. Six. Six hours. Okay. So what does he do when he sees that she's upset? He goes over there and says, hey, what's the problem? She says, nothing, nothing's a problem. <laughs> he says, come on, you can, you can tell me, what, what's the problem? She says, nothing, nothing's the problem. He says, come on. No, he's harassing her. This is harassment. <laughs> she said, nothing. Yeah, he won't let it go, because he knows it's something. So he keeps harassing her. What is it? Come on, what's bothering her? So then finally she says, Look, I don't want to talk about it. Then suddenly he becomes a demotic cop. 
it, you don't talk about it. Ah. <laughs> so there's an it. You couldn't not want to talk about it unless there's an it. Now, if she's still talking to him at this point, she may tell him, look, there's nothing to do. I don't want to do anything. There's nothing for you to do. Him absolutely beside himself because if you are masculine and you come from the world of doing, you come from the six days of action, right? So for you, you know, there's a, there's a saying that when the only tool you possess is a hammer, then the whole world looks like a nail. <laughs> so men know how to do. So the problem has to be that there's something that needs to be done. Just tell me what it is and I'll take care of it. But you, you're forcing all of us to suffer. Because you won't tell me how to fix it. Tell me what it is, and I'll take care of it. And, and she says, no, there's nothing for you to take care of. And then she says something that to a man, the words are English, and he could <laughs> translate, like he could define, he understands what each word means. But as a sentence, it's completely, she might as well be speaking Martian. She says, look, I just want you to be there for me. <laughs> he's thinking, he's thinking. No, no, no. That, how do you be there? What, what, how do you be there? You don't do anything. What's, what's being there? You don't do it? You don't? This is very hard for him to understand. Because, first of all, okay, basically he's saying, don't do anything. Okay, so I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm not allowed to do anything. So I have to sit in the same room with someone who's upset. Probably at me. She didn't say so. Probably me, because that's the Hazaka so far. Usually she's upset. I'm somewhere involved in that equation. And I have to sit here and I can't do anything about it. This is like enhanced interrogation techniques. Right? No, it's not torture. Enhanced interrogation techniques. Sit here in a room with someone who's upset, probably at you, and do nothing about it. So his, his thought, and this is very rational, by the way. If you're a man, this is very rational. It's, listen, there's nothing I can do. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'm very enlightened. I'm woke. You know, I know. You know, I'm a sensitive man. You can't fix all problems. He knows he's, had, he's supposed to say that. I know you can't fix all problems. You can't do it. So listen, how about this? I'm going to go. And when you think of something I could do, you text me, and I'm going to be here really fast. And I'm going to do it. You let me know. What do you think is something for me to do? But no, 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 that's not, no, that's not what it is. You're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to do anything, but he's not allowed to leave. <laughs> he has to sit there, not doing anything. And if you look at your phone, that doesn't count either. No, <laughs> doesn't count. Don't. Is it like being ready to do something? Is that what it is? He's not sure what it is. 
but you sit there and you don't do anything and you don't even try to do anything because if you're thinking about doing something, they know. They know that you're thinking about something you can do. And then something happens, like a few minutes later, she's like, yeah, so I was thinking I was going to make a casserole tomorrow for dinner. It's a trick. She's trying to lure me into a false sense of security. Acting like everything's normal. Maybe this is a trap. She's probably upset about a casserole. Did I eat the casserole? When did I? I probably ate the casserole. So he's just, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so anyways, I have to pick up the kids at 5.30, and I'm going to probably stop, uh, you know, I probably have to go shopping beforehand, and I'm going to get the, the cornflakes, the casserole, and he realizes, oh, she's better. <laughs> How'd she get better? I didn't do anything. It's this amazing thing. You know, you don't solutionize. You don't offer help. You just be there. You just be there, whatever that means. You just be there. And then everything gets better. It's this amazing healing power of being. That's what Shabbos is in our lives. You finally stop doing it, you get to be, and when you, when you be, it just, it takes care of everything. It's almost like magic. Just, when you finally just be, it resets everything, because it just aligns you with your essence. It just puts you back to whatever it is that you really are. And then everything's good again. So you can go back out there and mess it up again. But then you go back to the being. Always every, every seven days, you have a Shabbos in him. And for a man, his relationship with his wife is that Shabbos, is that you know, reality check. Hey, that thing that you do out there in the world that everyone gives you credit for, that's not you. That's not reality. That's not existence. That's a thing that you do. That's a pastime. You come home and sit quietly next to your wife and not solutionize. That's your essence. That's who you are. <coughs> And there's this profound power in the being, just being. We are people who are so addicted to, I said before, addicted to distraction as redundancy. We are addicted to keeping busy. That's also the same redundancy. Busyness is not productivity. We do so many things just to make ourselves feel busy. Because we're antsy, because we cannot just be. We can't just be present in the moment. You ever touch a button, you know, an elevator button? Yeah? You ever touch it twice? Why? It doesn't speed the elevator up. Why do you do that? You know when little kids, you go on a you know, cross-country trip and you stop at the truck stop, and before a certain age, if they're young enough, you don't have to give them quarters for the video games, because they don't have enough eye-hand coordination to actually be able to trace the cause and effect between the way they're moving the joystick and the, you know, the spaceship on the screen. So they just, you don't have to give them any money, they just move the joystick and they think they're actually playing. <laughs> High score. 
right? And they feel like they're doing something. That's the same thing for adults. Push the elevator button. <laughs> Sorry, okay, just brace yourselves up there. Just pressed it three times. Hope no one's in the elevator. Probably pushed up against the ceiling and how fast that elevator's coming down now. That's distraction. That's being busy. That's being addicted to doing. And sometimes we need to reset the system. We've got to stop doing. Thank God for Shabbos. Thank God for femininity. Where we can stop doing and we can just be. And that's where all the deep stuff occurs. It doesn't happen when you're doing. Doing is superficiality. But being is essence. That's where, when you really, and by the way, let me just add this helpful hint. You know, there's so many times when there's a problem in a relationship and we're feeling stress and strain and, and we, we assume that there's something that needs to be done and probably 99 times out of 100 it's not something that needs to be done. It's not something that you're not doing that you should be. It's probably something that you're doing that you shouldn't. Relationships, marriages are beyond us. They're not something we can create. They're, they're miracles. So our doing doesn't really make them or break them. Just sort of like ancillary support. The most important thing is the being, the not doing. Just letting it be. Revering its sanctity and not interfering with it. Not having such hubris, such ego to think that we create it. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. When there's peace in the home between man and woman, it's a gift. Smartest thing we can do is just cherish it and not mess it up. Safest thing to do usually is do nothing. Just stand back and revere the gift. It's not, it's not, it's not a human interaction. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a divine energy that's, that's placed in our lives. That's why sages equate shalom bias with the presence of God in the home. That's really what it is. It's something otherworldly. It's beyond us. We can't generate it. We can just sort of preserve it by not messing it up. Anyway, there are many, 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 many more things to be said, all based upon these same principles. I gave you the main rules. Now it's just uh, details, how to plug it in. And... Uh, God willing, we'll all uh, do our best in applying a spiritual, um, a Jewish perspective on our relationships. And uh, God willing, that will bring uh, divine blessing into all of our homes. Good night.
figure out that secret ingredient. Huh? It's all yours. Oh, this is Q&A? Are you okay? Yeah. 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 I just work here, so So, like I said, there are layers and levels to the relationship. And, uh, you know, like I told this story about the little boy whose father was his Malamed. So he's both. We are finite. He's infinite. We experience one relationship at a time. So, even on Rosh Hashanah, when Hashem is the father and the king, it's sort of father or king. That's why we say, im kavodim, im kebonim, one or the other. Um, because that's the appropriate one of those two are the appropriate relationship on Rosh Hashanah. But that's for a certain day. That's for a very important day of the year, yes. But then there's the underlying relationship. It's always there at all times. That's what we're talking about. Holy of Holies being the core. And even when we're experiencing other relationships, the core, the one that's always present, the one that's the, the foundation of all other contexts, is the marriage. The marriage is the most basic, most essential relationship, even though there's other relationships that we also experience. And I find it, like, especially, I don't know, like, maybe I'm one of the things wrong, but when the Rosh comes, I, I, obviously I read the father and the king, but I try, I connect to the husband aspect a lot more, so I, I, I look at it like that. It's fine, just don't tell anyone that you're doing it. <laughs> I know you mentioned that a good a good uh, help for a husband to walk through the door and think of this, like in order to bring initiate to initiate that yeah. is to remember that he has like wife husband connection with the So I'm just curious, does the woman have any providing? Not don't worry about the job stuff. Talking about like the the does the woman have any masculinity or providing with the job? Such a great question. That's such a great question. No. So here's the deal. Gender fluidity is a real thing. Gender is not binary. Now, there is a certain, you know, it's like, I'll put it this way. Should you light one more candle every night of Hanukkah or one less? Well, really, you should do both. But I can only do one or the other. So for now, we go like base hill. And when the shift comes, we'll go like base shot. So should I consider myself male or female? Well, we have ways in halacha of determining it. It's basically based on your recognizable gender. But that doesn't mean that you don't have masculinity and femininity. Everybody has masculinity and femininity. In fact, not, every, not just everyone, everything in the world has, is embedded with that energy. Everything exists because of that energy. And that energy runs through everyone and everything. The question becomes, where are the appropriate outlets for your masculinity if you're a woman and your femininity if you're a man? So I'm going to say something that might sound really 
rigid and oppressive and unyielding. <coughs> and that is that in your marriage, a man should bring only his masculinity and a woman should bring only her femininity. There are men who have a lot more femininity than others and women who have a lot more masculinity than others. If you are such a person, you should certainly find outlets for that and channels for that, um, but not in your marriage. That's not where it belongs. Conversely, in our relationship with Hashem, all of us, male and female, should bring all of our femininity. We shouldn't try to be a husband to Him. We should be a woman. We should be feminine to Him. Now, you want to hear something really? I'm not, this is not being recorded, right? Okay. Oh, it is? So you know. No, it's okay. Doesn't matter. It's okay. <coughs> Jewish people are considered feminine. It's also why we're related to the moon instead of the sun. The moon is, well, that's a whole other thing. I have to explain why the moon is feminine and the sun is masculine. If you want to sit here for another 20 minutes, I can get into that, but I'll, uh, I'll leave that for another time. Um, sometimes we are considered Hashem's wife. Sometimes we're his daughter. Sometimes we're his mother. Yeah. Kabbalah explains that sometimes we give so much to Hashem that it's as if we're the mother. Yeah, like a wife who gives so much back to her husband that it's almost like she gave birth to him. Is that not providing though? The giving? It's not providing in the sense of masculine providing. Masculine providing is when you bring the raw materials. Feminine providing is when you turn the raw materials into something else. By the way, it's interesting, there's a whole discussion in the, in the Gemara about who gives more tzedakah, the husband or the wife. They're a team. He goes out, he works, he gets the job I mean, traditionally. He has the job, he buys, he gets the income, he buys the, the groceries, and then uh, she turns it into food. So the Gemara concludes that she gives more tzedakah than he does because the poor, it says the poor man comes to the door. He cannot chew wheat. He can eat bread. So the man brought home the bag of wheat, or flour, or whatever it is. She turned it into bread. So that is another classic example of masculinity and femininity. He brings home the raw materials. She turned it into something that can actually provide life to the, to the pauper who comes to the door. That's providing in a feminine way. Turning the flour into bread is feminine giving. Turning the, 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 the reproductive uh, genetic code into a baby is feminine giving. Or turning the seed into an apple tree is feminine giving. Yeah? The man was created from the dirt. It was the dirt the feminine and then in the shaman the masculine seed that went inside and was received and turned into a life? Oh, that is so good. 
That is really, really good. Yes, in the person, body and soul are, well, let me ask you, which is feminine, which is masculine? You know, it says when Sarah died, Abraham went to mourn her in Hebron, which is Curious Arba. And from this we learn all of the secrets about death and mourning, according to Torah. Because Sarah is the body, Abraham is the soul. Hebron is the word chibor, composition. Curious Arba is the breaking apart or the disintegration of the material into its four elements. So when the body is placed in the ground, Abraham goes to Sarah and cries over Sarah. The soul goes to the gravesite and cries for the body. Soul is masculine, body is feminine. Now, who's the giver? Let's do half the truth. What's the first half of the truth? Who's the giver? First half of the truth is the soul is the giver. The body is a golem. It's just a, a mound of dirt. Soul's the giver. Body's the receiver. That's half the truth. What's the other half of the truth? What that soul does while it's in a body <coughs> is something incomparable to what souls in heaven can achieve. Souls in heaven, it's nice up there, sitting in the hot tub, drinking the pina colada. It's very, if you're a soul, be up in heaven, it's, it's very nice. But to really accomplish something, it has to come down to a body. So who gives more to whom? The body ends up giving to the soul. They say that when the Vilna Goyen was on his deathbed, he was crying, and his Talmudim asked him why he's crying. And he, he grabs his talus cotton and he says, where I'm, where I'm going right now, he says, where I'm leaving, for a few kopecks you can buy a talus cotton and do Hashem's will. Where I'm going, for all the spiritual treasure, you can't buy one of these. So who's the real giver? The body. And by the way, that's why in Triasamesim, in the resurrection, Instead of souls nourishing bodies, bodies will nourish souls, which is also why society will become matriarchal in the times of Mashiach as well, because we'll see the superiority of the feminine over the masculine. Okay, let's say it again. That's right. Which we spoke about before in Atzilos, the six emotions and Malchus. Malchus is also known as Kesser Malchus. Malchus is the lowest of the ten spheres, but her source is in the, in the highest. And there's actually a sphere that's above spheres. At least in, in, in there's different schools of Kabbalah, but uh, in Lurianic Kabbalah, Kesser is off the charts. So you have Chochmah bin Adas, the three intellectual, then Chesek Vodit Feres Netzachayit, Yesoid are the six emotions, and then Malchus is the is the recipient, so that's three and six and, and, and one, that's ten. Kesser is off the chart. Malchus is actually sourced in, in Kesser, which is why we say, that the uh, woman of valor is the crown of her husband. 
which is also why we say, who is a proper woman? You can translate that. Again, this is one of those half a truth things. A proper woman does the will of her husband. She's subservient. Or you can translate it a different. Aisa doesn't have to mean she does, it can mean she makes. She makes his will. That means she doesn't impose her will on him. She gets him to think it's his idea. <laughs> you guys, you know what I'm talking about. She creates in him a will. Why? Because she's Malchus, but really she comes from Kesser. She's really the highest. And we can't see that now, we can't appreciate it now. And that's why women are disenfranchised and taken advantage of and abused because that's one of the chief symptoms of exile. And I don't speak of exile as a socio-political ill. That's a symptom of exile. Exile is a metaphysical ill, which is shchinta begulusa, Hashem's femininity is in exile. And that's why women are mistreated. It's one of the greatest symptoms of exile. And one of the greatest signs of Mashiach is the position of women becoming strengthened. That's why you can see, you know, as we come closer to Mashiach, so the mistreatment of women, which used to be absolutely rampant, um, actually, at least now, it's at least, you're not supposed to be proud of it. You know, if you mistreat women, at least you don't brag about it now. At least people have some shame about it. Ultimately, Mashiach comes, we will see the superiority of the femininity over the masculine. And, and primarily, this is the most startling idea, we will see how the perfection of this world was something that we, Hashem's wife, made possible. We will see our own greatness. As much as godliness will be revealed when Mashiach comes, what will be even more revealed is our godliness, our greatness, what we did for Him by turning this world into a dwelling place for Hashem. What else? Anything else? Yeah. Why are most of the names in the Shama family? What? Why are most of the names in the Shama family, like the Shama, if it's a masculine? Because the, the soul compared to the body is masculine and feminine. The soul compared to God is feminine and masculine. Everything is relative. It all depends where you stand. It all depends where you stand. By the way, I'll give you, give you another example, maybe more relatable. Emotions and speech. Which is masculine, which is feminine? Speech is feminine, why? Because you know that it's feminine? Tell me why. Why is speech feminine? Emotions are masculine, yeah, compared to speech. Emotions are why? Yeah, that's true. It's a mamma chazal that the women speak more than men. Yeah, that's true. But the question is by the way, you know, Rav Hutner says, there's different types, the Dibur and Amira and Sikha, Shema from the Pachyism. I'm telling Yechna, Yechna knows this stuff. But I'm not talking about women compared to men. I'm talking about speech compared to emotion. Why is speech feminine and emotion is masculine? Go back to your provider-recipient paradigm. 
Tell me, in terms of provider and recipient, who's the provider, who's the recipient? Well, the emotions give to speech. Right. If you don't have what to talk about, then what are you going to say? Well, I know some people don't really. <laughs> they don't need what to talk about. But this, the emotion is the content, and the speech is the delivery system. So that, that's giver and recipient. Right? Male and female. But you tell me this. Explain to me this phenomenon. You ever see somebody, and they're talking about something emotional, and then they all of a sudden they choke up? Have you seen this? They choke like Freeze frame. If you keep talking, you're going to cry. Talking makes you cry. If you have an emotion that's sufficiently poignant that could bring you to tears, then cry now before you say it. And if you don't have such an emotion, why will talking cause you to cry? But it's an interesting thing. As much as emotions give to speech, they give speech what to talk about. Speech gives back to emotions, because every giver-recipient relationship is this way. So something that's poignant is never quite as poignant until you say it. And once you start saying it, oh, then it hits you. So all of a sudden, you have more emotion than you started with. Now, if you didn't have emotion to start with, you couldn't have started speaking. But once you start speaking, the speech actually gives back to the emotion and intensifies the emotion, makes it more poignant. Same thing with seichel, same thing with intellect. Let's say I'm explaining a concept. If I don't have the concept, I have nothing to tell you. So the, the content is the information, that's masculine, the provider. The speech is the delivery system. That's how I give birth to and I project outward the content, the information that I know. And yet, I never understand an idea as well as when I teach it. So by saying it to you, look, if I don't know it, I can't say it. And yet, I don't know it as well until I say it. That's again, it's masculine and feminine. All of these giver and recipient relationships that are in creation, they're in every level of creation, are all this way. So that's why, you know, we mentioned before, I learned much from my teachers, more from my colleagues, but from my students most of all. That's why I say, just say, more than the rich man does for the poor man in the act of tzedakah, the poor man does for the rich man. Femininity is a bigger giver than masculinity. The only difference is masculinity gives first. And if you take that back to our relationship with Hashem, yes, that's that mind-blowing radical concept. We give more to Him than He gives to us, but He gives first. He gives us everything. We're nothing without Him, but we're going to give Him a home. Why? It is wild. You don't think that's wild? It's crazy. Truth is stranger than fiction. What else? 
anything else. We're gonna we're gonna hang out here all night. People don't have babysitters. They have jobs. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.